Okay, well, um, my pleasure to welcome everyone to this um, public event. This is sponsored by the Social and Economic Data Sciences Unit and the Department of Methodology here at the London School of Economics. It's, um, I'm Kenneth Benoit. I'm the director of SEDS. I'm also the head of the Department of Methodology, an unusual convergence of roles this year. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome Jorn uh, Lissigen, who is going to be speaking tonight about outside insight, navigating in a world drowning in data. John is the founder and CEO of Meltwater. He's a Norwegian entrepreneur and philanthropist and has been involved in previous ventures, including two exits and an IPO. He founded Meltwater in Oslo, Norway in 2001 with an investment of just $15,000. Very impressive leverage there on the $15,000. He, uh, he built on the notion of outside insight, and the firm Meltwater is now a global leader in B2B online media intelligence with over 60 offices across six continents. He founded Meltwater Entrepreneurial School of Technology, MEST, a pan-African training program, seed fund and incubator for African entrepreneurs in 2008, and he also launched Shack 15, which is a global data science hub here in London in 2016. He's been featured on CNN, TechCrunch, TEDx, and now, most significantly, here at our public events program at the London School of Economics. It's my pleasure to welcome Jorn, and it's floor is yours. All right. Thank you. Maybe I need to use this. It should pick you up. You should be fine. Yeah. yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for that, and uh, thank you for coming today. Um, Upside Insight is an idea that um, kind of grew with me for for a few years. It was really an idea that came to me, uh, and was really the motivation for me to start Melford in the first place. And fundamentally. It was a realization that external information actually is really valuable for company decision-making. But for 16 years, I've been working building Malfoder, and I've been really surprised to see how little executives really are incorporating external information. And for 16 years, I've been waiting for executives to you know, utilize the information in a much more rigorous way and finally, I concluded I had to write a book about it. So that's why uh, I did, and that book was launched this week here in London. I will start my presentation with uh, three propositions. The first one is that I think that decision-making is of a major overhaul. I think that decision-making needs to adjust to a new digital reality. The second proposition of mine is that because of this, we are really going to see an entire new software category emerge. And this software category, I believe, will be one of the most important softwares that executives and companies rely on for insights and for decision making. And as a consequence, how companies are run and governed will actually in a very fundamental way, change. 
and change the way we look at companies, change the way we look at healthy companies, change the way we want to govern companies, and change the way we like to pay our executives. So let me start with a little vantage point of what Melfort is. Uh, that, ex that will help you understand you know, the vantage point we have in the industry, maybe help you understand why we're thinking the way we do. But um, as Ken was saying, you started in Oslo, in Norway. Pretty humble beginning. We started with $15,000. You started in a shack. It was called Shack 15. It was an old shipyard, and all this whole shipyard uh, was to be demolished. And in these different shacks, there was some uh, free office space that we got. Uh, so I got actually free office space from one of my former clients. And um, the vision back then was to create a software that when executives come to work in the morning and they have their normal cup of coffee, Within seconds, we will provide an overview of what has happened in the world in the last 24 hours. So we started off with a service that basically monitors online news and company websites. So whenever things were changing on your competitor's website, you will be notified about it. Whenever something happened in news and mentions that was important for you, you will be notified. And the idea was to find a needle in the haystack. That's really how it started. And this was back in 2001. This was for, before Google Alert came. And this was really before uh, most of these uh, uh, companies that do text analytics on the internet um, uh, was started. But over the years, we've grown to a global business. We're headquartered now in San Francisco. That's where I'm based. We have more than 1,500 employees globally. We have more than 26,000 corporate clients. 50% of the global, 50% uh, of the Fortune 500 is client to Meltwater. So we have everything from clients like Apple, McDonald, uh, Coca-Cola. Um, to organizations like Manchester United, car companies, I think we have pretty much any brand out there. Tesla was a client of us before they became, uh, before they shipped any cars. But we also have things uh, and organizations like United Nations, and maybe one of my favorite clients is actually the Vatican. So I usually say, my joke is that we have everything from Coca-Cola to the Pope in Rome. And so, and we are a global business today, and as Ken was saying, we're also a bootstrap business. Fundamentally what we do, very, very straightforward, we mine a lot of data. So a big part of what we do is extract data, clean it, normalize it, enrich it, and then uh, pr provide a, an ability to search and do queries, and of course real-time analytics. And over the years, what we really come to realize is that we are really in the business of analyzing forward-looking information. So initially, where they started was that people start to uh, monitor information about themselves, really about their brand. So um, if you think about the brand, brand is really a forward-looking um, metric helping you to understand something about your f uh, future performance. Same thing about client satisfaction. As social media became prolific, client satisfaction is something that you can in real-time measure. You can in real-time measure the launch or how well an, the launch of a new product was received. How was it received in Germany? How was it received in the US? How was it received in Asia? And of course, you can also measure the relative strength of different companies by share of voice. How strong is this company versus another? So in the early days of uh, our expansion into the US, we signed up a small company. We didn't really understand what they were doing. Uh, they were in the neighborhood. There were 20-some people. We certainly didn't understand their business model. And the company called, was called YouTube. And 
the way they used our service, we thought was really interesting. They measured their media mentions. As simple as that was, they compared that with the media mentions of their competitors. And at the time, there was a handful of players in that space, and it was anyone's guess who was going to be the winner. And, uh, but you could certainly see how YouTube is starting to take off and create space between themselves and their competitors. And that was an early indicator that YouTube would be the winner in that space. So by analyzing all this information, we concluded that as a company, what we're really doing is to help to track, measure, and understand leading performance indicators. And I mentioned we have a lot of clients uh, doing that across the world. But as we see, as we've seen then over these, these 16 years we had the, developed a business, is that we have seen a shift where there's an increased interest in external information. And clearly, the, the advent of social media and the prolific growth of social media has been an important factor in that. But if you think about the last few decades, there's an enormous amount of time, money, and effort the companies has invested in mining the internal data. There's a huge ERP industry. You heard about a company called Salesforce? They built a massive business on one product, the CRM product. So there's enormous amount of effort into building this. And there's, even these days, there are new BI software com uh, that has uh, entered uh, the market. Maybe you heard about Domo. That's one of the newest players. Tableau had tremendous success. So a lot of effort mining internal data. And when executives want to be rigorous, when executives want to be data-driven, they're really thinking about the internal data. So if you compare all the investment that's done on internal data to the investment that companies today do on external data, it is a very mismatched investment. At least that's what I would argue. And the interesting thing with external data is also that they are one of the most valuable sources for forward-looking information, for leading performance indicators. If one of your competitors hire a 30 data scientist, maybe that says something about their product ambitions. If they file a patent, it says something also about their intent. If they double their sales organization, it says something about their intent. So mining external data, you have an opportunity to understand a company's intent, your competitor's intent, and make decisions in more proactive fashion, and, and often also in real time. And if you take one, back, one step back and look at what has happened over the last decade or so, internet has, in a very fundamental way, transformed the, way we, uh, the world we are living in. Internet has transformed most industries that we know. Banking has changed, shopping has changed, Media has changed. The way real estate is sold is changed. Marketing has changed. The music industry has changed. I mean, there's almost no industries that has not been transformed. But decision-making has remained surprisingly unaffected. And that's where we think that decision-making has to catch up 
and need to adjust to a new digital reality. Because in this day and time, the amount of information that's available has completely uh, exploded. And, and it's very hard for anyone today to do anything without leaving online breadcrumbs. I don't know if any of you have tweeted that you're going to be at this event today, but a lot of you tweet, a lot of you put, post Facebook, a lot of you do Instagram, and every person shares on average 12 items per week on the internet today. And those pieces of information, they reveal who you're with, what kind of food you eat, what kind of places you like to hang out with, where you go on vacation. There's a tremendous amount of information that you reveal about yourself. But companies also leave digital breadcrumbs. Every time a company are making any initiative, launching a campaign, hiring people, changing the prices, they're leaving breadcrumbs. A patent filing is a breadcrumb. A job posting is a breadcrumb. A campaign to their clients is a breadcrumb. When they bid on Google AdWords is a breadcrumb. You can in this day and time measure how much online ad spend you have in Germany versus UK versus US and how all of these are trending over time. Here's an interesting breadcrumb that was discovered by VentureBit 25th of April last year. And this was right before Apple was about to launch the financial quarterly report. And Apple had overnight laid off all its contract recruiters. That, of course, is an interesting piece of information. And that was taken as a bad omen. And people were worried about their report because people expected their financials to be softer than, than, than usual. <clears throat> and it was much softer. It was the first quarter in many years that Apple reported lower sales. And as a consequence of that, $58 billion was shaved off the value of Apple. And sometimes these numbers are so large it's hard to, to you know, relate to. But I just checked, $58 billion is about the same as the market cap of BMW. And they spent about 150 years to, to get there. So it's a significant amount of money, even, even for a company like Apple. Talking of BMW, we mentioned Google AdWords. If you track a company's Google AdWords spend, you can understand how much money they invest in different markets, in different countries, and even what uh, type of cars they're pushing advertisement for. And imagine if you can track the advertisement spend of your competitors. Suddenly they're moving the online online ad spend from the low-end cars to the high-end cars. Isn't that really interesting? Maybe they move it from one country to another. Maybe they move their spend from Germany to UK. Really interesting information. And of course, information that's super valuable for you if you compete with a company like BMW. And Tesla here, you see, spends zero uh, ad, uh, money on uh, Google ad spend. They famously don't spend uh, money on marketing. Uh, they focus everything on PR because they have uh, Elon Musk. But if you take one step back and look at this, internet is a treasure trove of valuable data. There's a whole plethora of data types. 
that contains forward-looking information that can be used to predict your future performance. And really what we're talking about is really all the externalities that impact you as a business. And one way to look at it is really that because we live in a new digital reality, we have an opportunity to track Porter's Five Forces in real time. Porter's Five Forces can come to live in dashboards and real-time alerts and intimately help you understand the dynamics that happen in your competitive uh, market. And that, of course, is a tremendous opportunity. Most, I would argue that most companies today, when they look at their own company, when they look at their prognosis or forecast for next year, mostly look at their internal data, mostly look at some adjustment for those to create a budget for next year, without incorporating all these externalities and fully understanding all the external forces that, of course, also are very important to predict the future performance or next year's results. And this is where we believe, if you take a closer look at the way we make decisions today, it is quite obvious that the current way of making decisions has its weaknesses. So let's start with data sources. The data sources that are used today are fundamentally internal. They're internal data. They're myopic data. And what is the internal data? The last month sales results, last month churn, client acquisition cost, sales efficiencies. What is this information? This information is primarily operational metrics on how effective your organization is. That's really what you measure. And the focus is about you. It's an introvert focus. It's a navel-gazing activity. And the analytics, most of these analytics is lagging indicators. Most of these analytics, or most of the data that you analyze, are the end result or activities and investments that took place in the past. Sales result is a functional investment in product. It's a functional investment in sales organization, hiring sales people, training them, ramping them up to a full quarter, etc., etc. So by the time you actually get sales trickling into your ERP system, they certainly show up in your financial reports. They're fundamentally shadows of things that took place in the past. And the cadence, you look at the data, are typically monthly and quarterly. And when you look at all these things, I would argue that the way we make decisions today are actually a pretty reactive way of making decisions. And you could even argue that if you run your company you, based on your internal data, it's almost like driving a car looking in the rear view mirror. The new paradigm that involves external data, if you embrace external data, the focus is not about you anymore. The focus is about externalities. The focus is about your industry. The focus is about the ebbs and flow of your competitive landscape, the ebbs and flow of your industry. The analytics will then mostly focus on leading indicators. 
looking at the things that happen. Imagine you have a dashboard and suddenly there's something unusually happening, something unusual. Maybe that the ad spend of one of your competitors changed very abruptly in an unusual way. Maybe they move their spend, as I talked about, from the German market to the UK market. That can be an opportunity or it can, or it can be a threat. And right there and then, you can make a decision how you want to mitigate that opportunity or a threat. And the cadence is for this reason in real time. As these you know, anomalies are alerted to you, you can choose to make a decision right there and then. So if one of your competitors hire a lot of salespeople, instead of waiting for those salespeople to start to increase the competitive pressure in your market, and you, a few quarters down the road, see the sales result being weaker, you can choose to make a decision as they start to hire these salespeople. You want to hire more salespeople yourself? You want to increase your marketing spend? You want to change the pricing? Maybe you, do you want to change your bundling strategy? You can make those decisions as your competitor are actively starting their new initiative instead of waiting for the consequence of those initiatives to trickle into your, your, your internal systems and internal data. And the argument we will make is using external data is therefore a much more proactive way of making decisions. And the simple idea is that if you don't use external data, you only use a subset of the data that you have. If you do embrace external data, you provide much more information than you have not only information about yourself, but information about the overall industry. You have more informed decisions, and you can be a much more proactive executive. But for you to actually wrap your arms around this external information, you need help. It's not easy. One of the questions I ask myself, why is it that ex executives and businesses have not utilized this information? I mean, the idea that I, I, I propose is not rocket science by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it's obvious that external information is valuable. But I think there are two reasons why people don't use it now. One is that they are not used to it. They focus mostly on the things that uh, they, they're used to. All this new information, it's, all of this information wasn't available a few years back. And the second thing is, it's not easy to mine this information. So if you think about your internal data, most of the information in your internal data are structured. And most of the information is actually numbers. So for a BI company or a BI software to analyze all your internal data, it's a, it's a much more trivial task than to ex uh, analyze external data. External data are buried in a lot of unstructured data. Or the insights in external data is buried in, in, in unstructured data. And it's buried in text. And text comes in a multitude of different types. A news article is very different from a tweet. A tweet is very different from a press release, very different from a blog post, very different from a patent filing, different from a court document different from a job posting, etc. And in addition to that, you want to aggregate insights across a multitude of languages. And I heard some really interesting uh, estimates of how much of the text that's available on the internet that's actually in English. 
There was some research that was done at Stanford University. Maybe I can have some suggestions here. What percentage of the text available online do you think is in English? Any suggestions? 25%. Somebody, somebody very bold, give a suggestion. Anyone else? Did that sound high or low? Low. Low, right? I think it's low. The estimate is 9%. 9%. 9%. And a lot of the text analytics companies, a lot of these ERPs, software companies that do the analytics, tend to be English-centric and actually underestimate the multitude of information that's available on the internet in a wide variety of languages. And um, so, so all I wanted to, to, to convey with that is the complexity of mining external information. So net-net, what we believe is that because of the importance of external information, and because of the complexity of external information, companies need a new type of software to help them mine all this information. And this software will be to external data simplified. Uh, a simplified way to put it will be to external data, what BI is to internal data. Mining all this text, mining all this unstructured information, and help them to to understand forward-looking uh, metrics. We also believe that outside Insel, we enter the board boardroom with real-time competitive benchmarks. So we think that outside Insight will introduce a completely new level of transparency in companies. So if you sit on the board, if you are an investor, it's really hard to understand exactly what's going on in a company. And yep, basically um, left on trusting the management reports that are given to you. But if there's one thing that you know, is that those management reports are subjective. There's a narrative that they, the management have, and it's a sur subjective narrative, and you know that the data point that is presented to support that narrative are chosen because they support the narrative. The data that is, does not support the narrative are typically not there. But the interesting thing with the external data is that you can create third-party apples-to-apples comparison on how you are doing compared to your competitors. For that reason, I think of uh, outside insight or external information as benchmark science. You have an opportunity to benchmark your business on a multitude of dimensions, on a completely unemotional way, and understand how well you're doing. Client satisfaction. I'm doing, how am I doing on client satisfaction? Am I on industry average? Am I improving? Am I improving my station compared to my competitors? How much is, how much is it that I'm investing in marketing? Industry average? I'm in the top quarter. Am I investing less and more than my competitor? What is the overall trend in the market? How much do I invest in product? How much do I invest in sales? All of this information in this day and time, you can track and you can benchmark. And I think a lot of companies today benchmark too much for themselves. They look at this year's results compared to last year's results. So if you, for example, improved your client satisfaction with 15% year over year, 
Maybe you're happy with yourself. But it could be that your main competitor improved the client satisfaction with 20% in the same time period. So even you actually improved your actual client satisfaction score relatively yourself year over year. Net-net, you're actually worse off compared to uh, the market. And the last thing I will say and maybe invite to, to questions and and some discussions, maybe lively discussions about the opportunity of AI and scenario analysis and game theory in, in, in decision-making leadership, is that when you have this enormous sophistication in data analytics, it is an, an enormous amount of data that you need to process. And the expectation is that you're making decisions in real time you quickly end up in a situation where you take a page from the playbook or algorithmic trading. So when you make decisions, when there's a situation arising, your outside-inside software is automatically doing scenario analysis. They're spinning through all sorts of uh, permutations of what can happen. And based on historic uh, results, based on whatever cost-loss function you have, and whatever game theory that's embedded into the algorithm, they recommend a certain number of options for you to choose. And they can rank those options and score them based on risk return, based on what kind of objectives you want to accomplish, and, and, and so on. And with that, yeah, I can do a quick summary. I believe that we live in a new digital reality where everyone leaves breadcrumbs. All of us individually, as well as companies, leaves a lot of online breadcrumbs. I think it's important to internalize today. Porter's five forces can be tracked in real time. I believe that decision-making needs, needs to transform from introvert to extrovert. Companies need to think more about the industry than the internal operations. I'm convinced that all of you in a few years, we'll be using outside insight. Or maybe it's called something different. We coined it outside insight. But I'm convinced that you will be using software when you make decisions that help and support you in making those decisions. And this software, simplified, can be described as being BI for external information. And, but the most interesting question and, and maybe discussion is how this new perspective, this new software, will change the way companies are run, change the way companies are governed, change what it means to be a successful leader, change the way we think of the health of a company. And uh, with that, I uh, open the floor for questions. Thank you very much. Okay, so if you raise your hand, we'll take some questions, but I'm going to abuse my prerogative as chair and uh, start with a question. So, Jorn, the, um we have people come to us all the time for uh, advice about how to make use of the internal information they have in firms, and there are lots of firms out there who are struggling just to make sense of the internal information, what you've characterized as being part of the old school approach. Yep. If that's the case, 
how are companies going to keep their heads above water in this vast sea of external information? Because the challenge seems all the greater. Um, my response is that they just have to change. They have to, uh, you know, it doesn't matter to, to look more in the wrong place. I think one dimension you can look at is it a lagging indicator and leading indicators. So if you start there, I mean, there are not a number of leading indicators you can also mine internally. But I think, uh, to your point, companies are, today are spending a lot of effort trying to understand their internal data maybe even better than they already do. But I, my argument is, pick your battles. The big battles are really understanding external information and forward-looking information. Okay. Simplify. Thanks. So I'm making a note of hands, and we're going to start in the back there. I think I saw yours first. Well, actually, in the we we, we go first, and then we'll take the fellow in the back. So that's fine. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. Um, I, I am a former intelligence analyst. I um, uh, did predict um, a downturn in tax revenues in the entertainment and hospitality sector um, in late 2002, early 2003. I did this in late 2001 uh, on the grounds that America was going to invade Iraq in late 2002. Um, my... One quick question is, could you give us some examples of outside insight working? And secondly, uh, is there an issue in your company with staff um, in the relative effectiveness of people depending on degrees of autism? Thank you. Yeah, so if you think about the examples, I, um, you know, I mentioned a, a simple example um, uh, already with uh, YouTube. That's, that's a very simple one. There's another example in, in, in the book that we talk about um, a company called Racetrack that use external information to significantly increase their precision in next year's forecast. And I alluded a little bit to that in, in, in my presentation as well. Most companies, when they create next year's projections, they look at last year's performance, they do a little bit of adjustment, they try to sandbag a little bit, create some buffers and, and cushions here and there so that they can overachieve it next year. And then they kind of negotiate back and forth. And that's mostly the process in most companies. Um, and the idea that this um, executive had was that why don't we look at the external information because there must be so many external factors that does impact our next year's performance and by including those and carefully uh, analyzing those and, and trying to anticipate the development or create assumptions about how these external factors will evolve next year they were able to increase the precision in their forecasting significantly. So that's a very practical example, I think. And which external information that you need to look at will, of course, vary from company to company and, and industry, in, industry. So there's some thoughtfulness that needs to be uh, put into that. But, you know, for most cases, it's really the 80-20 rule, you know. 
20% of the factors probably are able to explain 80% of the, 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 the impact. Another example that I think is really interesting is um, EQT, which is one of the largest European-based private equity firms. And they launched a venture fund more for early-stage uh, investment in Europe. And they created a software that they gave the um, prosaic name the mother brain. And this software analyzing a wide range of data types online, job posting, web traffic, ad spam, and other online breadcrumbs. And they use that analytics to identify uh, early stage growth companies and to, to help them understand which companies they should track and which companies they should invest in. So those would be two examples. And when it comes to autism, uh, I'm not an uh, expert uh, on that, but um, yeah, so I don't think I actually qualified to, to, to answer that question. Okay, we had a question in the back there. Uh, hi, thank you for the talk. I was wondering if you believe there is a need to protect the privacy of the users, particularly those who might be unwillingly leaving these breadcrumbs, uh, maybe because they're not as technologically savvy or they're just generally not that well educated. And, uh, and if so, who should do this policing? Do we need a, a watchdog? Uh, should it be the government? Yeah. Um, I'm actually, uh, let me start by saying I'm a technologist. I'm an engineer. Uh, I'm technology optimist. But I do believe that privacy is a very, very important issue that needs to be addressed in a much more thoughtful way than it's currently done. I think even the most uh, technology savvy kind of forget or, or, or ignore how much information that each of us actually leave uh, online. And some information is intentional. For example, if you post a social media, uh, if you post a Facebook uh, message, but a lot of it is also unintentional. Whatever you search on Google, um, so there are lots of information out there that is really sensitive. Who should be the watchdog? I think clearly uh, the government needs to take a responsibility. It's, clearly that, it's clear to me that the corporates need to be regulated. Corporates want as much freedom and as much elbow room, elbow room to, to operate as possible, but I don't think that is in uh, everyone's interest. Okay, uh, I've got a question over here in the front, and then you after. Hi, um, you've talked about how um, in usually decision-making processes does not, do not yet involve enough data. Mm -hmm. um, from an organizational point of view, I guess. Um, from a psychological point of view, I just recently came across a paper called Algorithm Aversion, which uh, illustrates how people, even though they have the necessary access to data, still rely on their gut feeling most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, how does your company tackle these, these issues with uh, customers? Yeah. Um, I think, 
let, let me start by saying, I do think that uh, data should not be taken for face value always. I think one of the most important things that executives need to develop to be good executives, successful executives, is to question and challenge the data. There's one book that has, that has been recommended to me that I, 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 I want to read, which is called The Weapon of Math Destruction. And uh, maybe you guys have read it, but the, the, I think the gist of the book is that if you don't understand the, the underlying algorithmic um, behavior of your, your, your software, uh, you might end up in all sorts of biases. There's an innate biases in your algorithm that you don't know about, and your decisions are then biased in that direction. So, so I think you need to take all this software that helps you. Um, and, and although I argue that you need to use outside inside, you need software to, to wrap your uh, arms around all this external information, it needs to be challenged. It needs to be questioned. And I think one of the biggest uh, skills and capabilities successful leaders going forward will have is to understand the fundamentals of data science. They don't need to be the data scientist. But I think there are two things that are really important to understand in order to, to assess the recommendation of, of a software. And is number one is, how was this algorithm trained? On what data, right? What are the weaknesses in the data? Because an algorithm is only as good as the data it's been trained with. And the other thing is, what are the underlying assumptions, both with respect to the data, as well as the underlying uh, algorithm, because you need to understand those assumptions. And if they don't mesh up with the situation you're facing, the data could be completely invalid. So that was a little bit in a roundabout way to, to not fully answer your question. But, but I would say that this software is there to help you. Um, we had a debate here at uh, the other event where somebody described this software as a kind of GPS. And I thought that was a good metaphor. It is a GPS, but it doesn't necessarily tell you exactly where to go. And you need to challenge it, you need to question it, and you all, I think you, you, you need to rely on your own gut feel at some point. Um, so um, I think it's a combination of your software and your innate understanding of the situation, in, you know, your innate understanding of assumptions that at the end of the day will make the best decisions. We had, uh, we had Kathy O'Neill here speaking about weapons of math destruction in this event uh, in July, by the way. <laughs> so I had you next over here. Is it a good book? Uh, yes, very, it's fascinating. Yeah. That's the fascinating talk and very good book. And maybe I can add that, you know, so I, I, I did, um, I did research in artificial intelligence back in the days, and I was actually really uh, skeptical and negative to neural networks. And the reason why I've been always skeptical to neural networks and still harbor an, you know, a skepticism to deep learning is that it's a fundamentally a mapping function, which nobody really understands how it works. At least the way I look at it, and maybe you know you, you disagree, but I look at deep learning and these multi-layer uh, neural networks as a black box. 
And the way you use them is that you train them in data and you create a mapping function. But you have no idea how a completely new input will be mapped on the other side. And it could be a completely uncontrollable output. Maybe you suddenly you create a black swan on the other side, to use another metaphor that you, I'm sure that you're uh, familiar with. And I think if you want to use this software for really important decisions, how can you possibly rely on a black box? Because it's incomprehensible that you will be able to anticipate or understand the entire universe of outcomes with the, you know, the endless amount of inputs. So that's my maybe personal uh, skepticism to, to where we are today. I think we all should be phenomenally grateful for, for the progress that has happened in, in deep learning. I think it's a fantastic tool and it clearly has merits in, in a number of different ways. But I think you should be, be careful. It, I, I do think it's a black box. Okay, let's see. I've got a list of people in order of raising your hands. We'll go next over here. Fellow in the blue t-shirt. Hi there, John. Uh, thank you very much, first of all, for your fantastic uh, insight into what's happening in the industry and the way ahead. Um, I'm a student of the Data and Society program, Masters here at the LSE. And one of the things, um, really arguments, particularly with respect to unstructured data that we've been looking at, is uh, it's kind of an extension of the garbage in, garbage out you know, debate, and in particular, that the way in which analytics, um, you know, structurally works today mm -hmm. is that, particularly with respect to unstructured data, is mm -hmm. that it needs that unstructured data to be broken down to its very root, mm -hmm. to a very sort of a binary form. And what that causes is that it causes the data to lose kind of its emotional context or, or the real, you know, deep narrative behind that data. Mm. Is that a problem that you see affecting uh, decisions based on data going wrong? And if so, you know, do you see algorithms being in the near future reaching a stage where they'll be able to adapt to that kind of a problem? Yeah, I think it's a very valid point. And, and I think, um, you know, when I talked about neural network and I was skeptical neural network, I looked at that almost like a random walk. It almost like, yeah, it was almost like a random walk and you did it until you found some kind of maximum or minimum. The, the, the thing that I was a big um, um, proponent for was trying to incorporate as much a priori knowledge as possible into your algorithm. And to your point, when you, when you look at all this unstructured data and try to create structure, you can lose a lot of context. Um, so I think uh, understanding context and incorporating that into both the training phase as well as you know, classification phase is massively important. So the technology that I thought was going to be the big winner in the space was Fessiologic. I was convinced that Fessiologic would, in a very effective way, incorporate a priori information and also make sure that it was a controlled output based on input that was slightly different than the data that you were trained with. But for some reason, Fessiologic has not taken off. Is that because Fessiologic doesn't work? It's not as powerful? Or is it because we haven't researched enough about it? Uh, I don't know, but to me, I, uh, I have to say I completely 
miss. Uh, <laughs> I was not able to call the, the development in, in the last few years. So a question here somewhere near the front. Was that you? Yep. Okay. Yeah, you here with the black jumper? Uh, hello. Uh, I have a more specific question related to outside insight. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see any value of building the software like on top of, for example, the Meltwater platform through APIs or mm -hmm. similar, or do mm -hmm. you think it will be more valuable to create a bottom-up to have full control of how it so, so we will welcome you to build uh, software on top of uh, Meltwater. It's actually a part, an integral part of our strategy, actually. So uh, first quarter next year, we're actually launching a platform called fairhair.ai. So fairhair was the first king of Norway. He united all the different small kingdoms in Norway. And the idea with this platform is to unite all these different silos of data types on the internet. So the idea is then to expose all the data that we have, news, social, job posting, patent filing, press release, et cetera, et cetera, that are cleaned, normalized, enriched, and on top of that, offer a lot of data science models, and also the opportunity for you to build data science model on top of that. And there's also a lot of effort that we put in to create interoperability between libraries from Google, Amazon, Facebook, et cetera, so that you're not stuck in one uh, universe of, of, of uh, libraries. So um, I'll make sure that you guys get a little more information about uh, that platform um, when we're launching it in Q1. Great. So I have a question here. Hi. Um, how do you, maybe you can share some insight about how you differentiate the noise between the real authentic data in the unstructured, in the unstructured data? Um, you know, nowadays there's a lot of uh, fake news, paid reviews, you know. So even at individual level, when you check out for your holidays and stuff like that, you know, so you, you try to, you know, you know, some are paid, mm. paid reviews, some are fake one. But when you talk about organization, maybe you can share, you can share some insight what you see how this direction is going. I think that's a, an excellent question. Because as breadcrumbs becomes really important to understand your competitors, it's pretty obvious that there was a new practice that will be developed to drop fake breadcrumbs. Uh, and Fred, fake breadcrumbs will intentionally be created to confuse your competitors, right? Maybe you file a patent in an area that you have no intentions to invest in. Um, and I think these things will be um, prolific and it will be an arms race uh, between those who produce fake breadcrumbs and those who identify them. And you have, can see the small things happening already. Uh, you know, you have software today, free software today or services that can test whether your followers on Twitter are real people or not. Uh, so people like to boost their following. Uh, there have been politicians and others that kind of have been exposed in that way. And I think that's an example of fake breadcrumbs, if you like. Um, but it will be like an arms race, and similar to um, spam and spam filters. And uh, it's, I think it's hard to create fake breadcrumbs that are really uh, trustworthy. But, you know, 
Yeah, it's going to be a sub-industry of, of players that create and players that identify fake programs. So, good question. Okay. See, there's a question here, and then we'll take you back there, and we'll move over here after that. Um, I, was, I was intrigued by the, the client list that you brought up there, and I'm sure it's deliberately chosen to demonstrate a sort of eclectic mix of old and new technologies. But uh, obviously, if you're YouTube, you're clearly you're, you're attuned to this stuff. What I was interested in is if you take some of the sort of older economy companies that you have, um, how quickly are they adapting to what you're putting in front of them? Or is it just that they feel they ought to buy it because they recognize it's going to be the next big thing? And how, how ready are they for what you're providing? That's a good question. And so my slide, when I present all these logos, are really, you know, to pr try to present Meltwood in the most positive uh, way possible. Some of these clients use it in a very naive way. And some are using it in a very sophisticated way. So a whole range of, of uh, clients. And a lot of those clients are not necessarily clients global, uh, globally uh, and in their headquarters either. So it could be like a subsidiary or a specific department that are using it and are using it maybe sophisticated. But you're totally right. More traditional companies struggle massively to adapt to this. I think there's a lot of uh, smaller companies and more innovative companies that have a better opportunity to, to incorporate this, this new technology. And I think this is a good thing for all entrepreneurs. This is a good thing for all small companies. This is a good thing for all that want to challenge those big, old uh, dinosaurs in their industry. They can be faster, they can be quicker, they can be smarter, they can make decisions in real time instead of waiting for, for, for the others to make decisions and making decisions very slowly. But a very valid point. Hey, Jan. Thanks for your presentation. Um, my name is Lars. I'm also an engineer, an environmental engineer, working independent as a consultant, mostly on global monitoring of SDGs. Yeah. And what I would be interested in knowing from you is how would you approach markets where potential customers are not connected to the Internet? Don't leave breadcrumbs <laughs> where external data may not exist. And maybe thinking outside a bit of the corporate world, but maybe how global organizations, like you mentioned, you're working with the UN, maybe you could elaborate a bit on that, could make better decisions and investments in these markets. Um, World Bank investments in infrastructure, basic yep. services such as drinking water, sanitation, electricity, if you could, yeah, thanks. Yeah, so is there any particular places in the world you're thinking? Is it any particular countries or uh, markets you're thinking? I would say, I mean, anything that's considered as a low-income market, bottom of the pyramid is often a term that's yeah, been used. Yeah. Um, people lacking basic services, um, you know, where maybe not even cell phones, less toilets, drinking water, things like that. Um, these markets yeah. that are completely underserved by anything, I guess. Yeah. I think, um, I think that uh, my response would be, if there's no breadcrumbs, there's very little to mine. Uh, but I do think there are, you know, in this day and time, there are things that can be done. Uh, drones, I think, is super interesting. There are new, new data types that, that is coming where you can go in and, and check things. And drones is a uh, super effective way and, and often cost-effective way to, to get information that you normally wouldn't have. Um, but, you know, if, there, if people don't use phones, all these things, I think it's, I think it's very hard. Then... Uh, this is uh, 
probably not the main area to focus on for outside insight. Question over here. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, you, you've talked about unstructured data and data mining, you know, it's, which in a sense has been the, uh, the holy grail of business intelligence you know, for long time now and you had up on that your slide some of the established big tech companies who are focused on business intelligence and so forth um, they are presumably also very much focused on this ex you know the analysis of external data now as mm -hmm. well as internal data can you give some of your thoughts on who is doing interesting stuff uh, in terms of analyzing the external data and some of the approaches um, they're adopting. I mean, you talk about this as being a new software category, but are there any real examples there that you would point out today? Yeah, so with respect to the existing large players, I actually don't see much. Uh, the work that is done in this space is more on the new companies, and some, uh, and some of them are in social media, right? And they nibble at the edges of maybe the overall vision of across the, 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 the diversity of external data. But social media, of course, is a very valuable source of external information, and that, of course, is a well-established practice. And um, if you talked about uh, a little earlier, there are a multitude of social media analytic companies all, all, all over the world. And that can help you understand client satisfaction. They can understand your brand. They can understand your share of voice. They can understand sentiment, how strong your, your following is in the different demographics, age brackets, gender, etc. So they can do some of this stuff. Um, I also think there, you know, there, there are also examples of companies that specialize in a specific data silo. It could be a company that specializes in patent data. They look at the trends and, 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 and in the, the, the patents that are filed by the different companies. They use their experience to, to also price the value of a patent based on existing trading or patents in the market, etc. Um, but very little is actually done uh, connecting the dots across this vast uh, diversity of data types. So it is still very, very early days. Uh, at least that's what we have seen globally. Okay. And I got you in the back there. Uh, thank you for the talk. Just a very quick question. Is the problem with external data in a competitive sense? Everybody has access to it. So what I mean by that, if you're a kind of corporate performance, you know, you, apart from the Apple example you showed, generally you guard that well. So, you know, you guard your quarterly earnings and et cetera, and your competitiveness. And but you own that and you understand what's going on in your markets. The problem is in external data is once we reach a plateau, everybody understands what's going on. And there's a sort of common understanding of sentiment analysis, whatever it might be. Mm. So will we just kind of flip back around where we've mastered external data? We all have a common agreement. We go back to just looking at internal data. Uh, again, I suppose. No, I actually don't think so. I think the interesting thing with external data that is publicly available, right? But everyone look at that data differently. So it's not so that there is an objective truth. This is happening such and such in your industry. There are certain facts that happen. A competitor doubled their online ad spend. That's true. But the way people interpret that, the way people decide to mitigate that, 
It's a function of their own company's strengths and weaknesses, their own company's beliefs and assumptions about a number of things overall in the industry, and their their approach and, and choices in strategy uh, and so on. So although all the information is available, I think it's still going to create a, a um, diversity in terms of how people interpret it and execute on it. And then I'm talking about beyond the actual underlying te technical capabilities too. And of course, external information will not live in isolation. So you will tap into all the internal data as well, which fundamentally is more a feedback loop of all the activities you've done observing all these uh, events happening in your competitive landscape. And all the internal data, of course, is something that's proprietary to you. So the total pictures that you will make decisions on is a combination of external and internal. And uh, that, again, of course, will create, as I said, a diversity of interpretations and strategies and different ways of executing. And maybe that is, and maybe I will also stress that, because sometimes when, when you think of this academically, a lot, of is, a lot of it is focusing on what is the right assessment, what is the right decision, Whereas, in reality, most of the outcome is a function of execution, right? So you can analyze, you can do a formidable job in analyzing this situation, you can do a formidable job making the right decision, it doesn't mean that you win. At the end of the day, it's really all about execution, right? So um, I think that's also important to not lose, lose sight of. Okay, I've got time for just a couple, one or two more questions. We've got one over here, and then I'll come to you. Thank you for the presentation. I have a very simple question. You mentioned during uh, the conference that companies has not, have not embraced fully this new digital era, especially for decision-making. And I would like to know your thoughts on what is hindering companies from doing so, especially in emerging economies where most of the companies are actually small and medium enterprises. Uh, that's the case, for example, in Mexico, where 90% of the companies uh, fell into that category. What is it? What is happening? Is it uh, that it, the, these kind of services is still too expensive? Is, um, is it that uh, they are not, that companies are not aware of them? Or what are your thoughts on it? Hmm. Well, I, I, think, um, I think it's early days. Uh, the software that can help you understand all these external sources are not fully readily available. Um, in, in, in the book, we offer a promo code and give access to a um, private beta that try to connect the dots across a number of different data, data types. So I think the biggest hindrance for people to, to, to take, take advantage of all this external data in a systematic and rigorous manner is that there isn't really good solutions off the shelf. And to build that kind of software is really expensive and takes a lot of effort. So I think that's really the, 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 the main reason. But I believe there will be a number of different vendors in this space in the next few years. I think this is going to be the hottest and the fastest growing enterprise software space that we have seen in decades. And I think the big players in this space will be, be building companies that are much bigger than Salesforce because it's much more important data. It's much more important uh, for decision-making. So um, 
Maybe that's a good opportunity for some of the people here. Maybe some of you are budding entrepreneurs, I don't know. But uh, there will be a, lots of room for innovation and, and, and entrepreneurship in this space. I think we have one more question over here. Hi. Um, I think the idea is great, but aren't you afraid that, um, that people in companies will be resistant to using the software because it will force them to work harder and better? Um, I actually don't think so. Uh, I guess my perspective is simply that you know, it's a lot more success. Uh, it's a lot more fun to be successful and to win. And I think, uh, I, you know, maybe I'm uh, biased, but I think that you need this kind of software to be successful in the future. And it will be, you know, counterproductive to not embrace it and not not. Uh, uh, rent for it. So I don't necessarily think you need to work harder. Maybe it can help you to work less hard. Maybe it will save you some time may, to uh, not have to f hose out a lot of fires and issues that ended up because you made a, the wrong decision. I don't know. Okay. I think that takes us to the conclusion of our event for tonight. Thank very much, Jorn, for a fascinating talk, and thank you all for your attending and asking such great questions. <laughs>